Well, good morning. Uh, it is good to be with you this morning and uh, to be able to open God's Word and to come to it and to uh, sit under it. Uh, if you are new or visiting with us, uh, we are in the midst of a series in the book of Psalms. Uh, every summer we return to the Psalms because the Psalms uh, instruct us in what it means to be God's people. The Psalms teach us who God is and what he has done. Uh, the Psalms give us words to express the emotions that we feel and the, the things that we experience in our daily lives. And so we come back to them again and again. And this morning we're looking at Psalm 115. So you can turn your Bibles there. It's also going to be projected on the screen in front of you in just a moment. Psalm 115. And Psalm 115 is part of what we call the uh, Passover or Egyptian sometimes. Most people call it the Passover Hallel Psalms. Hallel is the Hebrew word for to praise. And these Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118, are the Passover Hallel Psalms, the Passover Praise Psalms. So these are songs that would have been sung during the Passover feast. So as the people of God had left Egypt, as they had been delivered, they would encounter and engage in the Passover feast every year as a way of celebrating what God had done in rescuing them out of Egypt. And in that time, they would sing these different psalms. And these psalms would give praise to God, give praise to him for who he is and what he has done. And that's what this psalm is doing. It gives praise to God, but not only that, this psalm also instructs us in what we are to do in light of who God is. And to discover what we are to do in light of who God is, we're going to see what we are to do through a repeated word. So as I'm about to read uh, the passage and as you're following along, I want you to listen for this word. It's, it's right in the middle of the, the passage. So kids, you can be following along. You can see uh, if you get it right or not. I'm going to come back to it and, and point it out so um, you can compete in a friendly way maybe with your parents, see how well they're paying attention. Uh, I did have some people laughing and smiling when I uh, revealed that word earlier in the early service, but, but let's pay attention to God's word and to hear what he is calling us to do. Beginning in verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens of the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. 
Praise the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask that as we come to it, that you would teach us what it means to be your people. That we would turn our hearts and our minds away from the things of this world and from ourselves. And we would fixate our eyes on you. For you are our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. So in October of 1909, Charles de Lambert, uh, he, he, he made history. In October of 1909, Charles de Lambert was one of the first pilots in Europe. He was one of the first men to have learned to fly a plane, and he had learned from the Wright brothers themselves. And on October 18, 1909, Charles de Lambert took off from a little airstrip outside of the city of Paris. And he flew towards Paris, and he started to fly over the city. And he approached the Eiffel Tower, and he, he rose up and flew over the title tower and circled it, and then returned safely to that little landing strip outside the city. Charles de Lambert, he may have been one of the first men to have ever flown over the city of Paris, but he was the first man to fly over the Eiffel Tower. The reports were that he had flown 300 feet over that 1,000-foot tower. He flew 1,300 feet, almost as high as the Wright brothers. But he was the first one to fly over the Eiffel Tower. And, you know, for us, we're like 1,300 feet. I mean, big deal, right? Like, there's mountains around here 1,300 feet. Like, that, you know, we get in planes and we're cruising at, you know, 10,000 feet or whatever it is that the pilot says, right? So 1,300 feet doesn't seem like much to us. But then it was dangerous. It took courage, right? He had to be brave and skilled to be able to do this. And the people around him at that time understood this. And so when he landed safely on that landing strip, he was surrounded by crowds of people and reporters. And they were celebrating and honoring Charles de Lambert. He gets out of his plane and he gets out to cheers and celebrations. And they're waiting to hear what he has to say, this man who first flew over the Eiffel Tower. And when he got out, he didn't point to himself. He didn't speak of what a great achievement. He didn't talk about his courage. He didn't talk about his abilities. He didn't honor himself. No, instead, he turned everyone's honor to another, to the brothers. He pointed over at Orville Wright, who was standing there, who had witnessed this historical event. And he said, here is the real man. I am only the jockey. He is the inventor. You see, Charles de Lambert knew as great as his accomplishment was, as, as much as those around him wanted to honor him, he understood that there was one who deserved even greater honor. And that's what the psalmist knows. It began in verse 1, right, with these beautiful words, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. You see, the psalmist understands something, he recognizes something, that as great as Israel might be, as wonderful as some of the kings were, that as powerful of a nation as maybe it had become, that as great as they were, there was one, there was another who was deserving of even greater honor than they. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Glory and honor and praise is to be given to God. 
And this really shouldn't surprise us, right, that we see this in the Psalms. I mean, the Psalms are God's word. They're part of the Bible, and the Bible instructs us on how we are to celebrate God and that God's people are to be people who honor him. So it shouldn't surprise us that the Psalms would say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. It shouldn't surprise us. We know that this is what we are to do. And so it should make us ask then, why don't we? Why is our praise inhibited? What hinders us from giving glory and honor to God? How would you answer that? Well, the psalm helps us. The psalmist, in verses 4 through 8, he turns our attention for a moment away from the Lord and turns to the nations. And he says of them, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. You see, the psalmist is looking at the world around him, at the nations around him, and what he is seeing is that these people are making idols, these little images, right? In the ancient world, they would take gold or silver or or wood, and they would chisel and carve these little images, and they'd stick them in their homes, and they would bow down, and they would worship them, and they would give these idols honor and glory and not the Lord. And if we know anything about the history of Israel, we know that this wasn't just a problem for the nations around them. That this started to seep into Israel. It started to seep into God's people, that God's people started to bow down and worship idols rather than God. But if we know anything about ourselves, we know that this isn't just a problem for Israel. And it's not just a problem for the nations, it's also a problem for us. Now, now I imagine that none of us are, are uh, melting down silver in our spare time. And, and probably none of us are carving little images that we then stick on our mantelpieces, right? And, and bowing down and worshiping and honoring those things, right? Like, kids, like, don't do that, right? We, we don't do that. No, we're way too sophisticated for those sorts of things. We create other sorts of idols, Right? That, that's not just idols out in the world, but idols start to seep into the people of God. Things that we give honor and glory to rather than God. So what is the idol that you're struggling with? What is the thing that you are clinging to rather than to the Lord? Or without even thinking hard, probably ideas and thoughts of materialism and career and power family, intellect, and health, all those sorts of things start to fill our mind, right? That these are the things that people give themselves to and that they take the place of God in our lives. And there's no doubt that those are legitimate struggles. But, but an even greater idol than power or intellect or career or wealth, there is an even greater idol than that. And I would venture to say that the idol of our time is not any of those things I just named. But the idol of our time is the idol of self. Autonomy. Self-actualization. Individualism. That is the idol of our day. 
right? It's in the movies we watch. From princess movies like Frozen to musicals like The Greatest Showman. It's in the lyrics of the songs that we hear on the radio, right? Pop songs by Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and and a whole host of others. And, And then even if we go back in time to the crooners of old like Sinatra who sang, I did it my way. The idol of self is the idol of today. I mean, this is why we minimize the needs of others and we invoke our rights. This is why we downplay the experience of minorities because it's never happened to me. This is why we engage in addictive and destructive behaviors because it makes me feel good for a moment. And in all these things and things like it, what we're doing is we're putting the love of self ahead of the love of others and the love for God. And that's what idolatry does. It turns us away from God. Idolatry says, not to you, O Lord, not to you, but to myself I will give glory. So how do we combat this? What do we do about this? Well, the first thing we have to do is repent. I mean, I need to repent. I need to repent because this is the air that we breathe, y'all. Like, like this is our default. I need to repent of this, and so do you. We need to start with repentance, but, but then to combat it, what we need to do is turn to that repeated word. Did, did you get the repeated word? Did you see it in the middle? It's repeated four times trust. That's how we compete. That's how we combat the idol of self. We put our trust not in ourselves. We put our trust in the Lord. Look, in verse 8, the psalmist says that that those who look to idols trust in them. But the people of God, in verses 9 through 11, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. How do we combat idolatry, the idol of self? Not by thinking worse of ourselves, but by thinking highly of God and by putting our trust in him. That's what we are to do. We put our trust in the Lord. And the psalmist tells us why we are to trust in him. Because God rules God rules over us and over this world. Look, the nations, we're told, they mockingly ask, where is their God? And how does the psalmist reply? Verse 3, our God is the God, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And later in verse 15, we're told that God is the one who made the heaven and the earth. God is the one who created the heavens and the earth and he formed and fashioned them. And he reigns and sits in that place of of greatest authority, of greatest power, of greatest honor. He rules over this world. But what is amazing is that God doesn't just create the world and then remove himself and step away and leave us to ourselves, but instead he engages in the world. We're told he does all that he pleases. This one with greatest power and authority, he does all that he pleases. Now, that line might cause a little bit of consternation for some of us. 
Because if someone is all-powerful and isn't bound by anything, and if he does what he pleases, what if what he pleases is harsh, is abusive, is wicked? What if God is capricious, careless, impulsive? I mean, some of you have read Greek mythology, right? Homer, you've read about the Greek gods, right? Kids, maybe you've read Percy Jackson or you've watched the movies and we see the Greek gods and how they're portrayed, right? And, and what, how are the gods depicted? They're finicky and erratic. And mankind is just a toy or a puppet to be played with, to be used, to be manipulated. So what if God is like that? Well, that would be a terrifying proposition. But that's not the Lord. That's not the God of the Bible. He isn't finicky. He isn't abusive. He isn't manipulative. He's powerful, and he's good. It's like that beautiful line in the, in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, when the children discover from Mr. Beaver that Aslan, the Christ figure, is a lion, and they're afraid because lions are terrifying, right? And they ask, but is he safe? And what does Mr. Beaver say? Safe? <laughs> Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Y'all, that, that is the God of the Bible. That is the Lord who rules. He rules with goodness. And his goodness is shown in how he rules. You see, he does what he pleases, and what he pleases is to protect his people. You see, that's the second reason why we trust him because God protects us. We see it in verses 9 through 11. When the psalmist tells us three times to trust in the Lord, he then repeats three times why we are to trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He is their help and their shield. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. This language is used throughout the psalms to show us that God doesn't leave his people to danger and he doesn't leave them to themselves, but instead he guards his people. He surrounds his people with protection. And look which members of his people he does it for. In verse 9, Israel, which means the general population of the people. In verse 10, he says, the house of Aaron, which were the priests and the clergy. That, that Israel is to trust in the Lord, that the house of Aaron is to trust in the Lord. Verse 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Those who fear the Lord, most commentators think these are people who were once outside of God's people. They were part of the nations and they had been converted. They had been brought in and they had been made part of God's people. <clears throat> Excuse me. That they too are to fear the Lord, that they are to trust the Lord, to know that God protects them. In other words, what we see is that no matter your station and no matter your position within God's people, whether you have heard God's word from your earliest days or whether you are new to the faith or whether you are called to lead God's people, that God is your help and shield. And I have to tell you all, this is a great comfort to me. Because in times of trouble and of need, it's easy to think, God's got more important things to deal with, right? Like, there's more important people for him to care for than me. 
Surely my struggles and sadness, I mean, they're trite compared to the struggles of this world. It's easy for us to think that, isn't it? But you know, it's that thinking that contributes to us trusting ourselves. Because if we think that we're too little, we're too small, we're too inconsequential for God to care or to listen or to be mindful of us, then who will we trust in? Me. We're going to look to ourselves rather than finding help in trusting in the Lord. But listen to what the psalm said. God isn't a help and a shield only for the important people or the influential people or for all those other people. He's a help and a shield for, for me and for you, for Israel and the house of Aaron and for all who fear the Lord. He surrounds us with his protection. And y'all, that's why we trust him. Because he protects his people. He rules over his people. And finally, because he blesses his people. We see this in verses 12 through 15. The psalmist says, The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. So earlier we had heard that the Lord does all that he pleases, and, and I was alluding to the fact that that should actually give us comfort, but do you see why it should give us comfort? Because the Lord, in doing all that he pleases, he blesses his people. He blesses his people, all his people. We heard it again, right? Israel and the house of Aaron and those who fear the Lord, and then the psalmist includes those who are small and great. That the Lord blesses all of his people. And we're not just talking about momentary small bits of happiness, right, that he gives, like the provision of food or clothes or shelter. Though, though those things come from God's hand, and we should thank him for those things. But, but even the great things, the greater things are from him. I mean, verse 12, the psalmist says that the Lord has remembered us. He has not forgotten or turned away, but he remembers us. He sees our need and he blesses us. So what is this blessing then? Well, you remember earlier I said that this is, an, is a uh, Passover Hallel psalm. And so you remember that means that they were singing it during the Passover. And so as they gathered for the Passover feast, they would celebrate that God had delivered his people out of Egypt that God's people who had been enslaved for hundreds of years under this foreign power, that God had not gone deaf to their cries, but he heard their groans and he remembered his people and he saved them. He rescued them. When God remembered his people, what did he do? He blessed them with salvation. He delivered them. He brought them out. And this is what they would sing year after year after year. They would remember the great blessing of God's salvation in the past. But y'all, what's amazing is that this was a psalm that was sung every Passover. And most commentators think that the first two of the Passover Hallel psalms were sung before the Passover and the, the rest of them were sung after, beginning with Psalm 115. 
And so we're told actually in the Gospels that after Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples and after he instituted the Lord's Supper that they left that place and as they were going to the garden, they sang a psalm. It would have been these psalms. So think about that, y'all. As Jesus was going to the garden, as he was going to the place of his arrest, and his torture, and his death, what was on his lips? God has remembered us. God rules over us. God is our help and our shield. God blesses us. These are the words that Jesus would have had on his lips just moments before his own death. Not only would he sing them, but he was going on his way to show us what that blessing is. The blessing that's greater than even the exodus. The salvation that all God's people have longed for and looked to and hoped would one day come, it has. God has remembered not just Israel of old, but he has remembered us and blessed us with redemption. Redemption that comes only through his son, the one who gave his life on our behalf so that we would know the blessing of God. And friends, that is why we trust in him. That is why we do not look to the idols of this world and we do not look to the idol of self, but why we look to the Lord and put our trust and our hope in him. Because he is the one who rules and he is the one who protects and he is the one who blesses. And so we trust him and say, not to us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. But to your name, give glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have protected us, that you have ruled over us and blessed us with the blessing of redemption. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you sang these words, that you proclaimed these truths, and that you went, and you went to your death for our behalf, on our behalf. For that we are thankful, and we praise you, and ask that you would help us to trust you today and all of our days, to look away from this world and to look to you, our God and our King, whose name is above every name, and in whom we place our trust. And we pray all this in the name of Christ. And God's people said together, amen.